just a little quick recap video for you guys, uh, for you visual learners from uh, thebibleproject.com. It's a cool website, so if you liked those videos, be sure to check it out. Hi, uh, I'm Steven Okamoto. I am the youth director here at church, um, and Pastor Corey is on vacation, so it's my privilege to get to speak to you guys today. Um, since I'm not a regular up here, I, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with me, uh, we're going to get to know each other real quick. Uh, one of my favorite uh, icebreaker questions to get to know someone is, what is your most embarrassing moment? Uh, some people, they have trouble thinking of their most embarrassing moment, but not me. I, I can, uh, to my dismay and to the delight of many other people, my two most embarrassing moments have both been caught on video, actually. Uh, one was there was a concert at my school, and my friends were singing, and I totally crashed into these bushes, and, and, was, and my scooter and backpack went flying everywhere, and the camera pans from them to, like, over here, and the, all the crowd's like, oh, oh, no. Right, and and that, that one's called uh, Will You Be There uh, equals Scooter Wipeout in the Library on 12-12-12, if you want to look it up on YouTube later. Um, but... That, so that has nothing to do with the message, but <laughs> my second most embarrassing moment, uh, it, that does. Uh, it goes all the way back to, uh, to fifth grade. So um, I spell my name, uh, as I said before, my name is Stephen, and I spell my name with a PH, right? So uh, oftentimes when people read my name, they call me Stefan instead of Stephen. And so uh, and that was just like a big fear that I had. I just hated that for some reason. Um, and if I was in fifth grade today, probably wouldn't be a very big, very big deal. Uh, Stephen Curry's in the NBA, and he's tearing it up, and he's cool, right? Uh, but back then, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, and so at my fifth grade graduation, uh, I'm worried that my principal is going to call me Stephen instead of Stephen, like when she announces my name and I go up to on stage like, to get my fifth grade diploma. And so I, I'm, I'm a little worried, uh, and, but during the practice run, she nails it. It's like, Stephen Okamoto, perfect, right? So uh, during the real thing, I'm, I'm a little worried, but not too bad. Right? I, I'm like, okay, she's going to get it. She's going to get it. So finally, after a long wait, it was my turn to be called up, and I step up uh, to the podium, and I hear, uh, I hear her announce, Stephanie Okamoto! <laughs> And I'm shocked. And as slowly as I walk up to the stage, I hear my mom yell, it's Steven! It's Steven! And, and then uh, the principal's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And uh, sure enough, like, after I step up off the podium, I'm like ruthlessly made fun of by my friends. The, the girl that I had a crush on made fun of me. It was like, oh, I'm never coming back from this. Like, there's a name that stuck with me for a while. And so, yikes, right? Now that we know more about my life than I would have ever thought was possible, um, I bring this up because the theme of one's name is interlaced throughout the story of Ruth. This is most clearly seen in Naomi, who, after suffering the loss of her son and her husband, returns to Bethlehem and tells people to call her Mara, which means bitter, as you saw in the video. However, Naomi wasn't the only one. Ruth also had some negative names ascribed to her. She was a foreigner from Moab who wasn't looked on favorably by the Israelites. And she was also a childless widow. Back then, if you didn't have a husband to provide for you, you were considered one of the most vulnerable people in all of society because you had no way to make a living for yourself. Furthermore, 
since it was back then, it was looked at as a woman's purpose to bear children and to raise them and ha have a child who could one day provide for her. Uh, from an outside perspective, like very harshly put, she was kind of worthless and, and in a really rough position. However, I would also say that it's not just Ruth and Naomi who are in a tough position, but Boaz as well, you know? He, here we have like this stand-up guy who cares for orphans and widows, and, but most scholars would agree that he was probably an unmarried man um, and, did not, and therefore did not have an heir that he could pass on his legacy to. And by, because he's such a stand-up guy and he wants to be a kinsman redeemer to Ruth, uh, he would, be not, he would not be extending his family line, but the family line of the dead husband. Back then, family lines and lineages were everything. And so, kinsman redeemership oftentimes wasn't looked on favorably as, as uh, something that someone had to do. So, Boaz also finds himself in a tough spot. So, now that we've painted a pictures of the main players of the story, let's jump into our passage, starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat, there, sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back, along, back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring, you the mat bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Whew. So this is a dramatic passage right here, and it's only half, half the passage so far. Right, so th the entire book of Ruth is building up Boaz and Ruth's relationship. And here we have some nameless dude to come in here and snatch that away at the last second. I don't think so, right? Uh, thankfully, like, as we see in verse 6, that crisis is averted because uh, he, he, once he hears that he has to marry Ruth, he has to turn down the offer, which gives Boaz the opportunity to step in. So... There are several reasons why scholars think that the guardian redeemer might have opted to not fulfill his obligation to be the guardian redeemer. It's possible, the one, that he didn't have enough money. Like, he could have opted, he could have been wealthy enough to purchase the land, but not wealthy enough to also care for a wife. And this, in this way, it would endanger his estate. It's possible. Um, another reason could be that he would have been unable to redeem Ruth because he himself was already married, and having a second wife would definitely endanger his estate. Um, another reason could be is that he didn't want to fulfill the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer with these new conditions of Ruth in the picture. If the man were simply to redeem the land from Naomi, there would, be, there would have been a high likelihood that he would have been able to keep this land for him and his children, because Naomi would have been too old to bear any children herself. 
That's a great investment. However, by having to take Ruth for his wife, the land would only be his until Ruth bore a child. Then the land would go back to Malon and Kilion's family line, Naomi's family line, rather than his own, which is not a great investment for him. Lastly, it's possible that, uh, that he looked at Ruth and saw someone who was not only undesirable as a non-Israelite, but he noted that whoever came in contact with these Moabite women ended up meeting an untimely fate. Elimelech married Naomi, uh, Elimelech married Naomi and he was dead. Malon and Kilion married Ruth and Orpah, dead and dead. He may have noticed that pattern and not been too keen to follow suit. But whatever the reason is, it's important to note that he could not be the one who was able to redeem, uh, which is much to our relief as the audience because we're definitely pulling for our guy Boaz and not this other guy. So jumping back into the passage uh, in verse 7, we see, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So when I read this, it seems like a very peculiar practice, right? When I was reading this, I was like trying to guess why they were doing this. And, and if you had asked me, I might have just said, well, they take off his sandal so that if one guy tries to pull a fast one, he can't run too fast. Uh, seems like plausible to me, but... Um, Experts seem to think that this par parallels the kinsman redeemership practices found in Deuteronomy 25. We read there that it says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, a widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So this passage is also very peculiar. Um, but what's important to note here is that if this is something, a practice that they still followed, then the nameless kinsman redeemer might have been gotten into a real bind had it not been for Boaz. Instead of a big ordeal with uh, spitting and, and yelling, and, uh, it was more of a business transaction now. Uh, he just passed off the sandal to Boaz. So this is important for later. So now moving back into the passage uh, in verse 8, we see, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the, his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, 
We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in all of Bethlehem. Through the offspring, through the, offspring the Lord gives, this, gives you by this young woman, may your family be like Perez, who bore Tamar, whom Tamar bore Judah. And that's basically it. Like, that's, uh, Ruth and Boaz finally came together, and they're totally perfect for each other. And uh, the, the book is pretty much over, minus uh, the epilogue, which Pastor Darren will be co- covering in the, in the coming weeks. So what are the takeaways? One common takeaway that, that I had, and I know a couple other people have had, is that Boaz is a pretty hot guy. And, and by, by this, I mean, like, he's, he's a great guy, right? He's responsible, He's, he's wealthy, he's a landowner, right? And he's compassionate to the poor and the vulnerable. And, and in the end, he gets the girl. He's a classic hero. And, and now that we've been, we're finished reading this passage, like how many of you single ladies are like, oh man, where's my Boaz at? Anyone, anyone? How many of you married ladies are like, oh, I wish my husband would be more like Boaz? You, you don't have to raise your hand, don't maybe. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm not just saying that for the ladies, right? Like, like the guys, too. They, we want to be someone who is noble and exemplary and attractive, right? We, we, we want to be like Boaz, too. However, all that being said, as much as we would like to insert ourselves into the story as Boaz, the hero, I would argue that we are a lot more like Ruth or Naomi, who are in desperate need of redemption and are unable to redeem themselves. Ruth and Naomi knew that they couldn't receive, redeem themselves due to their unfortunate circumstances, which were very clear. But sometimes we are enticed to believe this lie that we can find a redemption and purpose apart from Christ. When we fall victim to this trap, we are a lot more like the nameless kinsman redeemer, the villain of this story, than Boaz, the hero of the story. We have a tendency to think that we are a Boaz when in reality we are the opposite because we can't, cannot redeem ourselves. We have a tendency to think that we are a Boaz when we cannot redeem ourselves. Pastor Corey has been preaching the past couple of weeks that Boaz is not representative of us, but he's representative of Christ because Christ can redeem. We cannot redeem anything or anyone besides the coupons that we bring to the grocery store. This, the story of Ruth paints like this, this really beautiful picture of the gospel. In, in Deuteronomy, right, that we just read, it says, if a kinsman redeemer is unwilling or unable to redeem, then the standard procedure is for the widow to spit in his face, take off his shoe, and leave lasting shame that lasts generations. But in this transaction, Boaz took the sandal from the nameless kinsman redeemer, sparing him the shame that would have come on him and his family and taking on a burden that was originally not meant for him to bear. In the same way, has not Christ, through a similar transaction on the cross, taken our shame and our guilt, giving us new life in him and saving us from the punishment that we so deserve. The fact of the matter is, is that we need Jesus to take our sin and shame from us. We need Jesus to take our sin and our shame 
from us, just as Boaz took the sandal from the nameless kinsman redeemer. This is the power of the gospel and the foreshadowing of what was to come in Jesus. When we finally grasp the power of the gospel, when we accept that Jesus, accept Jesus as our redeemer, we, like Naomi, like Ruth, like Boaz, we move from namelessness to full love and redemption in Christ. We move from namelessness to full love and redemption in Christ. You know, to the ancient world, Ruth, this is nobody, right? She has no husband to care for her, no child to raise. She was from a foreign land. Boaz, great name, but his was about to be extinguished and forgotten without an heir that he could call his own. However, we see in the scriptures as part of their redemption, they receive a new hope in the blessings that the elders bestow on them in the verses 11 and 12. So for Ruth, we see that the blessing that they give her is that she would be like Rachel and Leah, the very woman who would bear the offspring that would become the nation of Israel. In giving her this blessing, God renames her circumstances from a foreigner and a childless widow to, be, to belonging and significance, right? She's, God moves her from being a foreigner and a childless widow to belonging, to significance, right? She, she will have a husband, so she'll no longer be unmarried. She will give birth, so she will no longer be childless. And she will be a revered and notable woman in the history of Israel. No longer a foreigner, but someone who is not only belongs, but is a key and vital part of that nation's history. For Boaz, we see his, that his blessing is one, that he would have great standing in Ephrathah, that he'd made, be made famous in his hometown of Bethlehem, and that his offspring would be like Perez, who birthed Judah, who is the patriarch of the greatest tribe in all of Israel. For Boaz, this blessing is significant because it entailed that he would not only be remembered and be famous uh, in his homeland, but that he would also have a lineage that would lead to Israel's greatest king, as he was King David's great-grandpa. And eventually, 14 generations later, he would be an heir of Christ. God renames his circumstances as being heirless to an heir, being an heir of kings, right? He doesn't have an heir. He's heirless to an heir of kings. And lastly, for Naomi, she was given a son, born, born to her from Ruth and Boaz. No longer would she go by the name of Mara, which again means bitterness, but she would call herself Naomi again as the people were joyfully declared a blessing over her that through her son she would be renewed in her old age. God renames her circumstance from bitterness to joyous renewal. Bitterness to joyous renewal. In the same way that God has renamed and redeemed Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz in this story, so God, has also, so God also redeems and renames us. You know, I've been using the word redeem and rename as, as kind of interchangeable, and they're somewhat, somewhat kind of inter interlaced, but they're not quite the same thing. Uh, but, but we do see them uniquely tied together through Scripture. Not only do we see it in the book of Ruth, 
right? But we see it in other notable characters, like when Saul, in Saul's redemption process, he becomes Paul, right? In Peter, uh, or Simon becomes Peter. This doesn't mean that you are done screwing up when you are renamed, right? Peter screwed up plenty of times after that, as we all know. Uh, but it does mean, it does mean that we have a new identity. In before we were, um, before we were foreign to the things of God, right? We didn't know anything about God, and now He calls us His sons and His daughters. Before we were broken people with broken families and broken relationships, and now. We are the healed and whole family of God. So I ask you this right now. What has God redeemed in your life? As you'll see on your handout, there are ways in which God has redeemed Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And there's also a spot for you. For me, if I'm thinking for my, about my fifth grade self, right, I went from being defined to what others said about me or what others called me to being defined about what God said about me, right? For others of you, it might be as simple as, you know, I was lost and now I am found. So I just want to spend like the next 30 seconds reflecting and writing the answer to the question, like how has God's redemption renamed me? Go ahead and spend the next 30 seconds. How has God's redemption renamed me? God has moved me from blank to blank. How are we doing? Is anyone, uh, you know, we don't have a ton of time, but uh, does anyone want, just want to share what they, what they wrote down? Just shout it out. Anyone? <laughs> Amen, Auntie Amy. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay. Uh, th- I think uh, this is just like a, a really helpful uh, exercise to do. And I hope that as you continue to reflect and, rede- and, and, and think about how God has redeemed and renamed your, you and your circumstances, um, that you continue to see that just, just throughout your life. The second and final question is, what does God, what does God have yet to redeem in your life? Right? We, we spent time thinking about what God has already redeemed, and, and, and now we're thinking about our present circumstances. Um, what does God have yet to redeem in your life? So this might be readily obvious to some of you, like, I'm not good enough, I have a crippling self-doubt, I have health problems, there's brokenness in my family, I, miss, I missed my loved ones, you know, etc. It's, it's really, really tough. Oftentimes we are powerless to do anything in our own strength to change these circumstances that we are faced with. The encouragement I leave you with is this. We can trust God to redeem our present brokenness because he is faithful 
and has given us a glimpse of our wholeness in heaven. He is faithful and has given us a glimpse of our wholeness in heaven. You know, if we were to ask Naomi how she was doing at the start of the story, she would have given you a very, very different answer than if you had asked her at the end of her story. God has been faithful to her, even if she couldn't see it at times. When we are in a place where we can't see, it is so important for us to do the exercise that we just did to remember how God has been faithful in renaming our identity and in our circumstances so that we can be reassured that he will continue to be faithful to the end. So whether right now you are experiencing victory and, and joy or sorrow and deep pain, whether we're at the beginning of our redemption story or nearing the end, if we have a saving relationship with God, we know that our story is going to have a glorious conclusion. Our final destination is to be with him forever, where we no longer experience suffering or brokenness, but will be made complete in Christ. Through, though our suffering may seem significant, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, redeem, strengthen, and establish you. A work that starts here on earth and is finished in heaven. Until then, we can minister to one another and advance the kingdom of, of heaven here on earth. We can cry out to God to redeem us for his will to be done here and, to, and live to praise his great name until the day that we see him face to face as the fully redeemed people of God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz, you have redeemed us and renamed us in such a way that, that at times it doesn't even make sense, God. Thank you that, that we cannot redeem on our own because if we could, if we tr when we try, we fall so short of the satisfaction and the joy that you bring our souls. God, I pray that we would settle for nothing less than clinging to you as our great kinsman redeemer, God, as our savior, as our Lord, as the best, as our best friend, God, and as a saving relationship with you. God, please be with us today, and may we have full confidence that you are with us every step of the way. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up so we can finish our